Good afternoon. I'm Joel Rasmus, Managing Director of Sirius here at Purdue University. It's my distinct honor to be able to welcome both the people in the room as well as the people who are tuning in virtually. Uh, since taking this and providing a virtual option at the start of the pandemic, we've only had a few of these in person. So it's great. So usually I get to do this introduction uh, in a sweatshirt in my own house in the home office and welcome everybody. Uh, so it is a, is a pleasure. Nice to see a lot of our students, faculty, uh, staff, and others here in the room, in addition to those who are tuning in online. Uh, for those, when it comes time for questions, those in the room, there are, uh, there are microphones in each desk. Please uh, poke the button. The green light will come on and you'll be able to ask your question. Those who are tuning in virtually, please uh, use the Q&A feature in Zoom, not the chat feature. We'll have somebody in room who will then uh, relay the question to our presenter. Also, for those who are tuning in who do have a cybersecurity uh, interest, please note the, the 24th annual Sirius uh, Cybersecurity Symposium will be held at Purdue University on March 28, 29. Registration can be found at the Sirius website, so sirius.purdue.edu, uh, and take a look at the agenda and hope to see many of you here in West Lafayette for that. And with that, it is my pleasure to be able to introduce our speaker today. Uh, our speaker is uh, Ronald Keene. Ron and I were both on the agenda at the Space ISAC meeting out in Colorado in October uh, and found out that we had uh, like uh, thoughts on some of the things. We didn't agree on everything, but we had great conversations regarding the intersection of space and cybersecurity. Uh, and at the time, I, I said, Ron, it would be great if we could actually have you come and share some of your thoughts uh, at our seminar and, and was uh, honored that he said, name the time and, and I'll be there. So uh, we're great. We had unbelievable great meetings today with a number of faculty across campus who are working again at that intersection of cyber security and space. Uh, and quite interestingly, uh, all of our faculty say, well, hold on, you need to also meet one of my peers that's also working in this. So uh, one of the beautiful things about having meetings on campus is that I too get introduced to a lot of faculty who are working in areas that I was not even aware. So uh, Ronald is uh, the Senior Advisor for Cybersecurity and Space Systems uh, at the National Risk Management Center within the Department of, uh, of Homeland Security and the Critical Infrastructure Security Agency. So, Ron, welcome to Purdue. Great to have you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Good afternoon, folks. How are you doing today? <clears throat> As he said, my name is Ron Keene. I am the Senior Advisor on Space Cybersecurity with the National Risk Management Center. Uh, as the only federal agency responsible for assessing risk to critical infrastructure, we have a number of interests, uh, one of which is space. And um, one of the reasons why is we did, we did a study about two years ago or so, and uh, my boss, he asked me, he said, how, many, how, many, uh, how much critical infrastructure on the, on the earth has a dependency on space? And at the time, I said, oh, maybe two or three sectors, I guess. And so we did a study, kept, the, kept the, uh, the level very high and found out that all 16 critical infrastructure sectors have a direct dependency on space. He asked me, he said, what about the national critical functions? And there are 55 of those that have been designated by the Department of Homeland Security. Again, we did a study and found out all 55 have a direct dependency on space. The only thing that shares that is energy and communications. All sectors have a dependency on energy. All sectors have a dependency on communications. So that puts space in kind of a rarefied air. And so we began to take a look at it. <clears throat> now, a lot of people are looking at space from space. What is, what is happening up there? We're taking a look at it from the reverse. <clears throat> Our responsibility is the critical infrastructure of the homeland. And we're looking at it from what happens up in space and how does that impact the critical infrastructure here on Earth? And so as a result, we take a look at everything that happens in space from a man-made perspective, from a natural perspective, and from just things that go bump in the night type perspectives. And we take a look at that, not only from what happens in space, but how it impacts the critical infrastructure here on Earth and how it then it flows out from there because every bit of the critical infrastructure on Earth has some cross dependencies and some interdependencies as well. <clears throat> All of this becomes very important when you begin to take a look at threat. And we'll get into that in just a minute. So as we began to look at that, we understood that our adversaries were also probably looking at that. 
and we have a number of adversaries. And the fact of the matter is, is they look at things from the perspective of what can I do to interfere with the critical infrastructure or with the ability of the United States to do some things with the least amount of work on their part, because their purpose is to accomplish a certain mission and our purpose is to maintain the, the infrastructure and keep things going. Bear in mind, most nations are not a projection power type nation. We are a projection power type nation. We project our power outward. We have very little things within the homeland or close to the homeland that require us to do much defense of the homeland itself. So most of our power projection is, is out from there, which means we have a very high reliance on things like satellite systems and remote operation systems. And so that puts us at a bit of a disadvantage. So as we begin to take a look at these sorts of things, we started to take a look at cybersecurity as one of them. <clears throat> now, cybersecurity in itself is interesting. First of all, um, we've been doing cybersecurity for about 60 years. Now, I know everybody, well, you know, we've only heard the term for about 10 or so. Cybersecurity started the very first day you bought an Apple computer or a Commodore 64 and you plugged in a password. That was the first day cybersecurity got started. And we've been doing cybersecurity ever since. We've called it a whole bunch of names. We've called it a, a whole bunch of different things. But in essence, we've been doing cybersecurity. And folks don't really think about it in that term. We think about it in terms of what we do today, where we have all of these vast arrays of, of different avenues of cybersecurity. We have threat analysis. We have uh, penetration testing and everything else. In reality, we've been doing that for 60 years. And so cybersecurity itself really hasn't changed. The environment has changed, but cybersecurity itself still relies on three basics. Those basics are boundary protection, access control, and asset management. You can throw a fourth one in or network monitoring. But in essence, you only have three things. And almost every single cyber incident involves either boundary protection, access control, or asset management. Now, when we talk about boundary control, <clears throat> you can have the most amazing firewall in the world. And you can have all of the gadgets and all of the neat stuff on there. But if you take a look at your cyber architecture diagram, and if you don't have a cyber architecture diagram, you're doing yourself a huge injustice. Because what you should find out on there, on your cyber architecture diagram, is not only that you have firewalls and remote stations and servers, but you should also have things like printers. Why? Because every printer for the past 20 years typically has a Bluetooth and a Wi-Fi connection. And every printer for the past 20 years has backdoor passwords. Same thing with security cameras, your thermostats, the Nest thermostat and all these others that you have, they all have Wi-Fi, they all have Bluetooth. And typically most folks will connect them into their system because it makes it easier if you control all your stuff from one little one pad or one computer or whatever you're using, your phone. And so all these devices have Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and they connect into your system. In a business, they connect into the business system, security cameras. Uh, there was an incident a number of years ago where <clears throat> a company got hacked because they went in through a fish thermometer. They had a saltwater tank in the lobby and they didn't want to constantly maintain, somebody had to get up and do the testing and everything. And this is one of those state-of-the-art systems. And so they had it Wi-Fi hooked in so that the receptionist could monitor the fish tank. And a beautiful fish tank from what I understand, but the, the uh, adversary went in through the back door of the fish monitor got in through the system, went in back way, and they got hacked through a fish monitor. Anything that ties into your system should be on your cyber architecture diagram, anything. And if your cyber architecture diagram doesn't have it, then you're doing yourself a disservice because at that point, your boundary isn't protected. Your boundary includes those printers. It includes those cameras. If you have a company that has remote devices, let's say you have a pipeline company, and you have 10,000 devices along your pipeline system, all remotely providing you data, flow, a whole variety of different things. And you don't have those listed on your cyber architecture diagram so that you know where they come into your system. You don't have the default passwords changed. You don't have a, an idea of what, they're, what they are, where they are. Those are avenues for the adversary. 
And if the adversary is looking for those and they find them, they will use them if they, if they need to. Access control. In my past, I have done probably about 3,000 assessments of a variety of different things, anything from cyber assessments to physical security assessments to operational assessments when I was in the military, a couple of others. When you go in and you find Joe Bag of Donuts credentials in your system, and Joe Bag of Donuts retired five years ago, you've got a problem. The problem is now is when we put Joe Bag of Donuts in there, what happens is, is his credentials are typically duplicated across the system, okay? And so when they go in to delete, they go into one database and they delete it, but they don't go into the other databases that feed off of that and delete those credentials. And so consequently, what ends up happening is Joe is still part of the system. He, doesn't, he may not be in the main, but he's part of the system. And so when I, the adversary, log on and it says, what's your password? I go, I don't remember my password. And what's it going to do? It's going to take me to a screen and it's going to say, what school were you, what school did you graduate from? Well, Joe probably has a Facebook account and Joe's pretty proud that he went to his reunion and he went to Watachi High School or whatever. And their mascot happens to be the lemming. So now I know that Joe graduated in 1977 and, and his mascot was the lemming and he graduated from Watachi High School. So I plug that in there, oh, gives a thing, says, uh, what's, your, what's your pet's name? Well, Joe's also on Facebook and he likes to show off pictures of his big dog. And typically he'll say somewhere in there the name of his big dog. And so I go that and I take that and I plug that in. Says, excellent, you're Joe, change your password. I changed my password and now Joe is back part of the company. And that can happen very easily. If we don't eliminate credentials of folks who are no longer in the company or no longer part of the organization, the adversary will figure that out. And because the way to change passwords is almost universally common, they ask things like, what is your mother's maiden name? What is your birthday? Or what, what, what school did you graduate from? What is your mascot? What was your favorite first concert? And we, as a very open society, like to brag about those things. And we put those things on stuff. And it's easy to find that information out. So the second thing is, is access control. Verify only the people who need access have access. That typically doesn't happen a lot. Third thing, asset management. We've already talked about remote devices. And companies have a lot of remote devices. I can't tell you how many companies probably have remote devices and have never maintained a log of when they installed the device, what was the original configuration, how many updates have been done and when have they been done, was the update even verified against the, the, the software. All of this information becomes valuable because an adversary can go in there and they can find that information on those remote devices. The dark web has a lot of information the adversary can use. The other thing is, is if I'm an adversary and I tell you, hey, I've got a, I can plug in and say, hey, there's a software update. How many of us just click on that software update, say, go ahead and update it? A lot of people. What happens if that software update is simply an update that leads you back to a version that had a default problem in it? If all you do is click on it and you upload that default, that, that software version that has, the, that has the issue in it, then all you've done is create a new door for them to get into. But we constantly do those sorts of things. Little tactics that they can use. There are a number of tactics, 50, 60, 70 different tactics. The key to it is, is you have to have a maintenance of your asset management. You have to know what you have on your system. You have to know where is it, what's it doing? Does it have default passwords? If it does, change them. So we've now, so we've now talked about cybersecurity from a, a high level. We've talked about the three basic things. Let's start applying this to space. In space, you have three basic segments. You have the satellite asset or the, the space asset. <clears throat> you have the link and you have the ground station. As a space operator, 
You need to have all three. As an adversary, I just need to keep you from talking to your satellite. That means I have three venues of attack. I can attack the satellite itself or the craft. I can attack your link or I can attack your ground station. I can do this by physical means. I can do this by directed energy, jamming, that sort of thing. Or I can do it by cybersecurity. Today we'll talk about cybersecurity. If I can get into your spacecraft, there are a number of things on your spacecraft I can interfere with. I can interfere with bus operations. That's basically the state of health of the satellite. That controls the heating components, that controls the thrust, that controls attitude management, the whole thing like that. I can get into your payload. I can get into your generation. There's a, there's a variety of things I can get into on the bird itself. Any one of those can prevent you from operating your bird. I can get into your link. If your link is not, if your link is um, one of the higher bands like EHF, it may be harder because EHF, uh, the EHF signal is about the size of a pencil. So it makes it a little more difficult for me to get into it. But if it's, a, if it's one of the lower bands, I may be able to get into it. Or I can get in using your ground station. I can get in directly with your ground station or I can get in through your ancillary systems. I can use your HVAC against you. I can use your power against you. I can use your comm links against you. I can use anything that's an ancillary system that makes your ground station run to shut your ground station down or to inhibit it from being able to do its operation. I can do that as an outside entity or I can do it as an insider. Okay, so now what you have is you have three venues of attack for the, the adversary. I can do this again, as I said, as an outsider, or I can be an insider. On top of that, the space systems itself, we look at those from about seven different perspectives. We look at it from academia. We look at it from manufacturing. We look at it from launch, from on-orbit operations, and that would be crewed or uncrewed. And then we can also look at it from the end of life. We take a look at it as well from some of the technologies that are influencing space. Those being robotics, three-dimensional printing, nanotechnology, and, um, and this one here. <laughs> nanotechnology, robot, oh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, okay? We can also look at it from cybersecurity. Each one of those has a vulnerability as well. Space is very complicated, okay? Any one of those areas can have an impact. The supply chain affects all of those. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So if we're taking a look at it from academia, <clears throat> let's talk about cybersecurity in academia. If you're doing research on a project, let's say you're doing research on some project that involves um, a new propulsion type of technology and you are not being careful or the material is not being handled properly, then you're allowing anyone else to have access to that material. And sometimes the adversary will get that. So you need to be careful of that. When you're doing that, the, 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 the advanced research that you folks are doing, when you're learning about new technologies, when you're learning about new ways to do things, be sensitive about that because the adversary wants that information. It's important to them just as much as it's important to you. When you get into the manufacturer, and in some cases, some universities, Purdue may be one, where you actually manufacture CubeSats, where you're actually doing work with CubeSats, getting them, getting them configured, getting them ready to go. Be aware of what you're doing. There are folks out there that want that information and they will do what they need to to get it. When you get into manufacturing itself, there's also thing, manufacturing processes. Uh, space technology is different than some of the stuff we do on earth. Okay, we design it a little bit different, uses different types of technology, different types of components, right? And there are sensitivities about that. Anytime that stuff is done, those are avenues for the adversary to gain an advantage, to simplify their own life, to be able to move themselves ahead of us. 
when you get into the manufacturing, you have a supply chain. And the supply chain becomes important because the supply chain itself has vulnerabilities. We are, we are a nation with a, both a domestic and an international supply chain. We rely heavily on the international supply chain. We rely heavily on our domestic supply chains. Those supply chains can be interfered with as well. And so as you're out there in the cyber world, as you're becoming the cyber experts, the folks that are gonna lead us into the next, the next age, be aware of that. Understand that there are vulnerabilities contained within that supply chain and that the adversary will be looking for those. Remember that the adversary works 24 seven, 365. That's their job, okay? We do the same, but it's for them, it's the same as us. It's a job, it needs to be done. Remember that they will do what they need to do because they have goals and, and they're focused on certain things as well. So as you get into the supply chain, the supply chain for academia may be completely different than the supply chain for the manufacturing side. Once you get the thing manufactured, then it comes the launch phase. Launch is nothing more than simply assembling the items, the booster, the payload, the other components, stacking it, prepping it, checking it, getting it out to the pad, launching it, doing on orbit, testing, deployment, and then turning it over to the user. There are a number of areas within there, if you think about it, where cybersecurity can become a problem. We have automated self-destruct now. It's a brand new system we're starting to use. Okay, this is where the sat, the, the, it used to be that as the bird was flying, you had a man or a person in the middle who would watch the bird. And if the parameters differed in any way, shape or form, they would push a button and would self-destruct the bird. Okay, we're going into an automated concept now where the bird has parameters built into it. All of these are new autonomous things that can be done. All of these are potential vulnerabilities. So once the thing is done is launched, then you have on orbit. On orbit has a whole variety of things. You can attack it with, um, with physical means. You can attack it with ASATs, both from the ground and from on orbit. You can attack it with directed energy, uh, anything from lasers to, to directed energy beams to jamming, a whole bunch of things there. You can attack it with cybersecurity roughly probably 29, 30 different venues of attack from cybersecurity. There are a number of ways that your bird can be attacked. If you have unencrypted communications, it makes it a little easier. Our older generation birds, a lot of them had unencrypted. We didn't even conceive of cybersecurity back then, okay? It just wasn't thought of, all right? So a lot of the legacy birds have unencrypted communications. Even some of the newer ones have unencrypted communications. Why? Because putting those packages on increases weight. Weight increases cost of launch. Weight increases the, the whole need, need for on-orbit maintenance. If you're gonna maintain the bird in orbit, then you're gonna to have to have more weight for fuel and everything else. So weight is a bad thing, and yet it's absolutely necessary in some cases. So a lot of folks will, will ignore encryption in favor of reducing weight and making their birds a little bit easier to fly. The other thing is, is, is mission. There are a lot of folks that say, look, it's just a research bird, okay? I'm just throwing it up there, it's gonna do research and then it's gonna come down. Great, absolutely fantastic. Except for the fact that you're gonna be communicating with that bird. Ground stations will communicate with that bird. And if that bird has some sort of a malware on it, there is a potential for that malware to be communicated back to the ground station and then to other birds. We don't think about those things. So on orbit is another problem. So we get into the on orbit issues and we talk about a little bit there. Um, some of the things that can be done, encrypted communications, uh, verifying what you're sending up. If you're sending up commands, making sure that you have two person control and commands. Uh, there's a whole variety of things that can be done. Uh, watching telemetry, making sure that you're not seeing something unusual happen in the telemetry. A lot of times if somebody has gotten into your satellite, you'll start to see the indications in your telemetry. Something will be different. Something will happen. And you'll start to see those indications, okay? Um, 
If you're in crude vehicles, crude vehicles, then it's even more important. Um, not a lot you can do up there if something goes wrong. I mean, then you're starting emergency procedures and everything else. But there, that's a whole new venue. Then we get to end of life. End of life typically is putting it up into a graveyard orbit or deorbiting it in, back into the atmosphere and burning up. If a, cyber, if a cyber attack can happen, they could take that bird and they could render it useless and maintain it in the same orbit. Now it becomes a piece of space junk. Now it becomes a problem. Space debris is gonna be our number one problem. We already have, what was it? 37 million pieces of space debris that are less than one centimeter in size. This is paint chips, flex, all sorts of things. Um, a while back, a fleck of paint, a chip of paint uh, from a Chinese booster uh, gouged out a window, I believe on the space, on the space station, I believe it was on the ISS. Uh, it gouged a window uh, and it was just a, a fleck of paint. Um, there was a micrometeoroid that penetrated the Soyuz rescue craft and they, they had to repair that um, with, uh, with some stuff. Uh, NASA one time put up a, a satellite, uh, it was a couple, three years ago, uh, left it up there for six months. Pull, and this was intended, they left it in orbit to see how many, how many hits it would get from space debris. Um, this was back in the, uh, the days of the shuttle. Left it up for six months, pulled it down, and they quit at 30,000. They stopped counting at 30,000 hits, okay? Space debris is a problem, okay? Um, how are we gonna fix it? It remains to be seen. You may be one of the folks that has the answer. I may be looking somebody in here who has that answer, hopefully. End of life is another problem. Like I said, if an adversary can get it, they could create a piece of space debris out of the capsule, out of the, out of the bird, all right? So what we have here is we have a whole variety of ways that the adversary can interfere using cybersecurity. They can also do that by the fact that, let's say I interfere with a bird in space and it has a particular component and I'm an adversary and I interfere with that component. Now, from my perspective, okay, and, and let's say this company comes in and says, hey, this, this adversary interfered with our bird this may sound, I'm going to be very concerned, but I'm not concerned necessarily for the satellite. What I'm concerned is I want to understand what component. Okay, and let's say that component was a particular processor. Here's the deal. Most space systems do not create their own unique components. They pull off the shelf technology, stuff that we're all using. If that component was accessed by an adversary, then there's a really good chance that that component is built into infrastructure here in the homeland. I need to understand what that component was. I need to understand what they did. How did they attack it? What metrics did they use? What vectors did they use? I need to be able to do that because now I need to be able to go in and find out where that component is in the critical infrastructure. That component may have a vulnerability that we need to be aware of. So it is important that we understand the attack vectors in space because they do directly deal with the vector, with the components and stuff that we deal with on, on the, in the homeland, on the terrestrial side. And so there is a direct connection. Now, one of the things you're gonna face in the cybersecurity world is there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things that they can attack. There are hundreds of dependencies probably. We do not have the resources. I look in this room and, and I'm, there may be someone in here who can handle a hundred attacks in every minute. We don't have the resources though to protect every single thing. So we tend to look at dependencies from the three angles. We look at it from a thing which I call CVS, criticality, velocity, and scope. So let's take criticality real quick. Criticality means if, if three of you have a dependency on a single satellite, each of those dependencies may be different even though they're the same type of dependency. 
one dependency may be absolutely critical to the operations of a company. If you, if you lose it, the company may have serious or significant damage to its operations or even be able to function. Another dependency may be serious, but the company has got some built-in backup or resilience or robustness. And a third may be simply convenient. It's more convenient, more cost-effective to happen to do it over the satellite than it is some other way. We look at those right now as basically being red, yellow, and green dependencies. A red dependency is something we really want to pay attention to. We want to pay attention to all of them, but a red one is one we want to resources against. A yellow one, we definitely want to try to put resources against. A green one, we may not because it's a convenience thing, or we may watch it to see if the adversary even touches it. We could get forensic, we could get forensic information off of it. We could watch how they do it. We could learn a whole bunch of stuff from something like that. So you have these criticalities, the red, the yellow, and the green. When you're looking at something, if you're looking at something from a threat perspective and you see multiple dependencies, think about the criticality of it. What is critical? What is not? And one of the things you can look at is, do they have plans in place to, to help with regards to those, those, uh, those particular dependencies? What we call it is a PACE plan. Primary, alternate, contingency, and emergency. If it's a red criticality, you would want them to have a primary, the primary plan, which is the, the dependency itself. You would want them to have an alternate, a contingency, and an emergency, because this is a pretty important dependency. If it's a yellow one, you'd probably want them to have an alternate and a contingency. And if it's a green one, they probably already have an alternate plan in place. With regards to velocity, the V, velocity is how fast that impact will be. How fast does it affect you? Some dependencies on satellites take hours, days, you may, not even, you may not even use it for a while. It could be data, backup data that you're getting and you don't really use it, it's just sitting there. So the, so the velocity of the impact may not be felt at all. Others can be felt almost immediately. What is the velocity? Understand the velocity of the impact to your dependency. If they interfere with that dependency, how fast is it gonna affect you? Finally, scope. Some dependencies may only affect one thing. Purdue University, for example. That's it. Everything else goes on, nothing, nothing problem. Some of them could affect, say, North America. Okay, so you have a local dependency, maybe you have a regional dependency, North America. You have a company that has a whole variety of things. You're, you're say, for example, you're a, uh, a filling station, a gas station company, okay? You have gas stations all around the US. They hit you and it flows through and affects all your gas stations. That's a regional impact. Say you have a hemispheric impact. Now, not only does it affect you, but it affects your operations in say Central America and South America. Or you could have a global impact. It not only affects you, but it affects all sorts of stuff around the world. So scope, how big is the scope of the impact? During the Ukraine-Russian situation, Russia jammed a satellite, Biosat 18. You all heard about that. The reason they did was for command and control. They wanted to shut down command and control for the Ukrainian army. What they didn't realize was remote SCADA was running across that satellite at the time and shut down 5,000 wind turbines, knocked out 11 point some odd gigawatts of power to the European folks. They probably didn't appreciate that at that time. The point is, is there was a dependency. The Ukrainians didn't have a big dependency on that command and control. They had maybe a yellow. But I will tell you this much, I'll bet you those power companies had a red dependency at that moment in time because they just lost 11 point some odd gigawatts of power. And I'll bet you that had a heck of an impact on a regional basis. That's what I'm talking about. We have infrastructure in the US that has the same problem. It does remote SCADA over satellite. Can't tell you exactly which ones are, but the fact still remains as it exists. There are other things on that bird that have, there, there could be a rancher who's looking for internet operations or something on something else. Somebody jams that bird, that rancher has probably a green dependency. Well, his internet's down, but he'll live. The pipeline company may have a red dependency because everything all of a sudden suddenly stops. 
Again, it's the criticality of the dependency based upon the, the, the attack against the bird. You as cyber experts need to think about those. Don't think about it from your perspective. Think about it from an adversarial perspective. Put your shoe, put yourself in the shoes of your adversary. What is the best way they can impact you? Think about that way. Always think about what is the best way they can get to you. And if you have a plan to be able to resist that, to have resilience, to have robustness, to have a mitigation plan in place, then you're doing the right thing. I'm gonna pause here for a minute and see if there's any questions. There's gotta be some questions. No questions. Up. <laughs> Yeah, so um, in what stage of flight would an adversary potentially have the best opportunity to get control of the flight termination uh, system? Yes, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. That, that, that can go in a variety of different things, okay? You could control, for example, uh, launch typically involves a lot of things. Okay, pre-launch. Um, you need fuel, you need uh, uh, water, you need oxygen. I mean, a variety of different components to be able to load the rocket to launch. You could interfere at that point. Interfere at the supply chain point, okay? The supply chain for launch involves getting fuel to the rocket, getting water into the dampeners, getting oxygen into your LOX tanks, those sorts of things. So you could interfere there. If you can, if you can shut down any one of those, you're gonna shut down the launch. Okay, and it doesn't, take, it doesn't take much in terms of that. We're talking, again, ancillary systems. Always as the adversary, when you're putting yourself in your adversary's point of view, think about ancillary systems. Don't think about just the rocket. Think about the things that supply the rocket, the fuel, the oxygen, the water, communication links, cables, those sorts of things. All of those things that go in to enabling that rocket to launch, okay? Um, you can think about terms, uh, you can think about points in the flight. Um, although I'm, I'm not sure uh, with today's state of art, it may not be as, as easy to do that. You can think about it in terms of being, interfere, to being able to interfere with perhaps on-orbit testing, deployment. If I can prevent you from deploying solar panels, okay, then that shuts down your ability for the bird to operate. Think about it in terms of where are the, where are the choke points that prevent the bird or, the, or the, the launch from being successful. And in order to do that, you have to then do your research. You're gonna to have to understand the launch system and the, the technology and the progression of the launch sequence and everything, as well as the folks who actually do it. And that's where the adversary works. That's where they do their work. They do all that research. They take a look and they understand what goes into that sum total. So if you're gonna, if you're going to become the adversary, then you have to think about that. If I have a ground station, what goes into the ground station? There's power, there's communications, there's personnel, okay? There's, H, there's HVAC. All of those things are required to make the ground station run. If the ground station doesn't have those, then it can't necessarily run. And so you take a look at how can I interfere with those? How can I shut that down even for a limited period of time so that I can inhibit operations of some sort? Does that help? Okay. Any other questions? Sir. So you were talking about boundary control and boundary management of um, sort of your asset and like how something like a printer is there we go. There something like a printer can be, you know, used against you to kind of compromise the entire system. Can you talk a little bit more about how that can affect like an individual or how one's individual personal effects can be used against them? Sure. To what extent? Sure. Let's say you are in a, um, an operation center, okay? And in the operation center, you have um, a printer connected up uh, and the printer is, is hooked into your thing, but the Wi-Fi and the Bluetooth are enabled. If I have a sniffer and I know which, what frequency you're sitting on on Wi-Fi, uh, with some of the older printers, 
I can actually download whatever you're printing and print it myself. Okay, so in other words, if you're printing out operation plans or something like that, I can gain access to those. If it's simply the Wi-Fi, I can get access into the Wi-Fi. Now, from the Wi-Fi point, when I'm in the, in the printer, then I can follow the pathways back. You use a pathway to get to that printer, be it over Wi-Fi or direct, direct link. Once I'm in there, I can begin going back through those to get back into your system. Okay, so it's simply following the path in reverse. Same thing with Bluetooth. Does that help? Okay. Saw some other hands. Nope. Sir. A worthwhile distinction between uh, injecting uh, perceived insecurity and actually taking control of the right of the satellite. It, is that a distinction? Yeah, there is a distinction. And, there is okay. a distinction. Okay. Simply because I have access doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to do anything. Okay. If I do something, let's say, for example, I have access to your bird, but I don't do anything, then the, the fact that I have access is still a bad thing. But if I want to, I can take and turn your bird 180 degrees. And now you have no control over it and will never get control over it. So the perception that I have control versus the actual activity that I have control are two different things. It's been said that we a lot of our systems have already been hacked, that there's a lot of malware, there's a lot of controlware in there, and things like that. That's a perception, okay? The fact that we perceive that we have been infiltrated in a number of places. The fact that the, the, the adversaries have not done anything yet is either because they're not ready to do something or they don't have the control we think they do, or they were simply doing something. We don't understand what the plan was. So we perceive they have control, but they haven't actually executed the control. And so that, that creates the thing of, we have to be prepared both ways. I mean, are there attacks that, oh, what am I, almost spoofing attacks or sure. spoofing things to, to, to try to, you know, reduce your, certainty that I I have control and no one else has. Exactly. That's a different. Exactly. Um, a good one was, um, well, the Ukraine power incident. Okay. That was a, that was a, that was a clear cut case where they not only had control, but they demonstrated it. Um, for those of you who remember that, uh, the Russians got into the Ukraine power system and there's a great video out on YouTube of the Ukrainian operator sitting there and the mouse on his key on his on his uh, computer is going back and forth and activating controls, and he's going, "I'm not touching it. I'm not touching it." And his boss is yelling, "Stop doing that!" And he's going, "I'm not touching it." And it was the Russian who was actually manipulating and learning the system as he was in there. He wasn't actually he actually then screwed up and actually executed and shut down power. But originally, he was trying to figure out what he was doing. And but he didn't realize, or maybe he did, that he was live, and the Ukrainians were filming it and watching it. And, and it's fun listening to the poor guy go, "I'm not touching it." And his boss is yelling at him, "Stop doing that!" And and but that's an example of, I have control. I wasn't doing anything, and then he did something. Now again, like I said, he actually demonstrated it, and you know visually. But the fact was is that he had control of the system. He had broken into the system. Any other questions, sir? Um, with the, the current state of, of the US infrastructure, do you think that um, with respect to attack vectors, the, the problem currently lies with the human factor or is it more so the systems themselves which are vulnerable to attack? You could use the same argument and go back to the Commodore 64 or the, or the, the original Apple. Was it, the human in the fact that we didn't secure it with our passwords and that, or was it the system was so simplistic that it had more avenues of attack than, than we had? I think it's a combination of both. I think, first of all, we do not pay attention to cyber. We claim we do, but we don't. When we leave things like boundary protection, 
and asset control and our access control and asset management uncompleted, then it's a human factor. When we have default passwords, okay, then that becomes a machine vulnerability that the human factor does not correct. So it's a combination of both. You have things built into the system that make it easy for the manufacturer to do certain things, but you also have the responsibility as the owner operator to go in and to correct those so that those don't become liabilities. They're, they're, they exist as a vulnerability. It's up to you to, to eliminate it as that vulnerability. So it's a, it's a two-way street. You have to be aware of what's in your system. It's the same thing on supply chain. If I have a component and that component comes from a manufacturer and they say, it's good to go. And you don't do the due diligence to go down two or three levels and find out if there are subcomponents or processors within it that may be doing things that shouldn't be done. Then it's a machine vulnerability in the fact that you're, you're pick, you picked up something that will create a vulnerability in your system, but it's a human intervention problem in the fact that you didn't take the time to do the research and figure that out. And so it becomes a both, it becomes both. Sir. That you dug deep enough once you've actually done like two or three levels into your system. Part of it is, part of it is staying connected with the community. Okay, uh, the community itself, whatever community in space, critical manufacturing, transportation, I don't care which one it is. Okay, people will talk. All right, people will say, hey, there's a, there's a component in there that was made by adversary X, and it's doing this. Okay, not staying connected with the community of your industry, first of all, that, that's, that's on you, that's on you, that's your vulnerability. Number two, talking with the folks who manufacture it. Okay, you don't have to go down eight levels deep, but you need to be able to talk to them. Where did they get the components? If they say, well, the component came from country Y. Well, is country Y a problem? If it is, then you need to do some more detailed work. If it's not, then you're okay. What you wanna do is you wanna sit there and find out those touch points that you can reach to get the information you need to be able to give you the assurance that the device is okay. The other thing is, is talk to the government agencies that are responsible, CISA, the, the, the cyber folks there. They may have something on it. Reaching out and finding out information from, from sources. It doesn't take long, but once you have that, then you have kind of an assurance that your system is okay. And once you have that assurance, then you're kind of more aware as you go forward, making sure other things that you're getting are the same way. So in conclusion, you're on the cusp of a strange new world. William Shatner said it, space, the final frontier. Well, I would tell you this, cybersecurity in space is a final frontier. You will see things there that you will never see on earth or on, on, a, terrestrial, on a terrestrial basis. You will experience things that you will never experience terrestrially. You will see new technologies developing at, at, at paces that are unheard of. 50 years ago, space was a few satellites, a couple of governments, and that was it. 10 years ago, space was still just a few countries, a few satellites, a couple space stations, and a shuttle. In the past five years, we have exponentially expanded beyond what we ever envisioned. In 15 years, you could see 100,000 LEO satellites. You could see 10 to 15 space stations. You will probably see up to 100 missions launched to the moon. You will see potentially us colonizing the moon permanently. You will see man in space in a way you have never conceived of. We will have things that we experience that we have never had to face. Cybersecurity issues, physical security issues, geopolitical issues a whole variety of things that will open up that none of us up to this point have ever seen. You are on the cusp of truly a strange new world. And that world will be challenging every single day for those of you in the cyber world, in the defense world, in the, in the high technology world. And it won't end just because the day ends. It will be a 24 7, 365 challenge. 
I envy you. Because when I came into space, I thought we were just like everybody, and we were, we were on top of it. We, won't face, we didn't face anything of what you're about to face. In the cyber world, you will face attacks and, and adversarial events that we can't even discuss because we, we haven't even thought about them yet. Robotics, nanotechnology, artificial intelligence. These areas are expanding faster than we can even begin to think about them. Five years ago, we were lucky if a robot could stand up on its own. Space Force just now employed artificial, or I'm sorry, robotic dogs to do patrol work at Patrick Air Force Base. Five, six years ago. Five, six years ago, we couldn't even get the robot to stand up. It kept falling over. Now we have robots doing guard duty. There are hotels in Japan where the entire hotel is run by robots. You check in with a velociraptor, which I think would be kind of a cool experience. <laughs> the point is, is you are on the cusp of, a, as I said, a strange new world. I envy you. I look forward to seeing what you do with it. And it's truly up to you. Don't take the path we did and think that we had pretty much control of our world. Because that's the wrong way to think. This is a world you're going to have to take control of. And you're going to have to be on top of it all the time. I hope you folks got something from my little talk today. Uh, I look forward to, if any of you have a chance to, to reach out to me, reach out. And other than that, thank you very, very much for your oppor the opportunity to speak with you. Ron, you want to uh, talks over? Uh, um, do you want to give any advice to the students who are interested in uh, careers uh, in space, with space, whether it's cybersecurity or otherwise? There are ten thousand companies in space right now in the world. Roughly fifty-two percent of those companies live in the U.S. Okay, the other forty-eight percent are spread out amongst one hundred and thirty some odd countries. Okay, there are. 16 licensed spaceports in the US today. There will probably be in the next five to 10 years up to 20 or 30. There are roughly a dozen launch companies doing vertical and horizontal launch. That'll probably double or triple. Pick a path. What do you wanna do? You wanna be in manufacturing, launch, do you want to do crude operations, uncrewed operations? Do you want to do threat analysis, cybersecurity, physical security? Pick a path that excites you. Not the one that has the greatest amount of money coming into it, although money is great. The path that makes you excited, the one that makes you wake up every morning and say, damn, I love this job, and then go for it. I guarantee no matter what that path is, I don't care if you start out manufacturing rockets with Boeing. I don't care if you start manufacturing engines with Morton Fikal. You will be involved in all aspects of space at one point or another. It's just the way the industry works. If you get in, go ahead. No, if you get into what you love, it will lead you in new directions you've never been. Live with your passion. I want to make a point that uh, you are a senior advisor for space to the Department of Homeland Security. Yes, sir. Ten years ago, did you think you were going to be working in space? Ten years ago, I was still doing, I was still writing testimony for the state of Indiana. I, I did 20 years as division director here in the state of Indiana writing testimony on behalf of the consumer for things on utility issues and that sort of thing. I did 20 years prior, I did 20 years total for the state of Indiana, 20 years in the Air Force. In the Air Force, I was in intelligence. I was an ICBM officer. I spent 10 years learning how to do rockets. I, I went to the Lockheed Martin Black Box School. I helped build uh, MILSATCOM Mil birds. I helped launch them, did on-orbit testing, actually flew the birds. Um, my last two years, I did counterterrorism on behalf of Space Command, preventing bad guys from doing stuff to our birds, okay? Uh, when I got out of that, like I said, I uh, stepped away from space, became a division director here in the state, did that for 20 years, writing testimony on behalf of the consumer 
trying to keep rates down. Um, when I did that, the wife said, no, you are not staying home. <laughs> so faced with that option of not staying home and not really having a career anymore, I was lucky enough, a uh, buddy of mine got me hooked up with this job. Um, as I said at the very beginning, uh, this is my third career and I still don't know what I wanna be when I grow up. So we'll figure it out. The point is, is I did what I wanted to do. I did where my passion went, okay? 10 years ago, I would not have imagined me back in space. I loved it. Trust me, I, space to me was something I, I woke up every single morning and said, damn, I love this job. I absolutely love space because it is such a changing dynamic. But the fact is, is 10 years ago, I didn't think that. 10 years ago, I figured, okay, that was, that was the past. And now I have no clue what I'll do. I know I'll probably stay in space for a while, but I still don't know where I'll end up settling down. DHS, maybe. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll get out of DHS and work as a consultant in space. I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet. The point is, is live your passion. If you don't, you will find a place and then you will regret what you're doing and you will always wonder, what if I had done this? Don't do the what if. Find your passion and do it because it will work for you. Any questions? <laughs> sure. And this is probably naive of me. So colonizing on the moon, right? Yeah. Like it is a piece of real estate. Mm -hmm. Who owns it? Like who has to get whose permission to start a colony on the moon? Right now, nobody. Right now, if, if you land on the moon and you plant your flag on the moon, say this piece of the moon is mine, then that piece of the moon is yours. If, if somebody lands next to you and plants their flag and says this piece is mine, then that's theirs. Okay, that, and, and, and again, I'm gonna say this, this is, this is st strictly me speaking. This is not DHS speaking. This is not the federal government speaking. This is no one but me personally. In the history of man, Anytime man has colonized or has moved into a territory where there have been others, there has never really been a peaceful coexistence. There has always been conflict, okay? People want territory. Is the moon going to be that way? I hope not, okay? I hope not, all right? But geopolitics are geopolitics. And you live in a world of a very changing geopolitical world. A lot of weird things happen. Again, pick a career that makes you happy. Pick a career that gives you passion. And things like moon colonization, that's gonna be a whole strange new world none of us have ever experienced. That's why I said, you folks are on the cusp of a world none of us have ever seen. I challenge you, I've, I've been doing this now for about 50 years. I challenge you, Think back on this day, 50 years from now, and go, what changed? I'll bet you 10 to 1, a hell of a lot changed more for you than it did for me. Okay? I, I can remember, this is dating myself, I remember sitting as a little kid in elementary school, and they pulled us all in the gymnasium, put a black and white TV, probably about a fourth the size of this, on a stand, turned it on, and there was an upside down picture of Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon. That was, that was kind of amazing to me. Here is this man landing on the moon, upside down. <laughs> Purdue graduate Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon. That was amazing to me. As a little kid, I'm watching man land on the moon. I've watched space go through the whole thing. The Apollo 1 fire, the Challenger, Columbia, everything. I've seen it all. It has been a strange, weird ride. And it doesn't even compare with what you folks are about to experience. You folks are going to get to see stuff I wish I could see. You know, you're going to see robots doing stuff that, like I said, I mean, like you've got robotic dogs now guarding stuff. Um, you've got robots that are dancing. I mean, it's, it's amazing what's going on out there. And you folks get to experience that. I truly am jealous. I, I, I do anything, chop about 
50 years off my life and start over again, because I think you guys are going to have a hell of a lot more fun than I ever did. And that, and that's, I mean that truthfully. So I wish every one of you the best. And like I said, 50 years from now, think back this day when you're sitting here, what the world was like and what the world is that you're living in. Let's see how much has changed for you.